The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. Uh, this time I'm joined by both of my co-hosts. We got together here for a nice special edition of an episode of Zombie Month, March of the Zombie Month. I, I haven't been plugging that in the previous two episodes, so I guess I might as well just forget it now. But yeah. um, it is it is March of the Undead Nazi Zombies. So yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we 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 have with me uh, the illustrious, the fashionably late Daniel Harper. How are you doing, Daniel? I just got off from work and I'm drinking a beer already. So, I'll what are you wait. drinking? I'm drinking a Red Chair Northwest Pale Ale from Deschutes, All right. which we now get in Michigan. So awesome cool. for me. Uh, and it was only eight ninety nine at the uh, grocery store this afternoon. So cool. All right, and uh, also with us, Paul, PA Brew News, from the backwoods of Pennsylvania somewhere, Sasquatch Territory. Yes. Hello, people. <laughs> and the main event for tonight is going to be the Nazi zombie movie Shockwaves from 1977. But before we get into that, we're going to cover a couple other little topics here and there. So first off, I think we're going to have a little discussion uh, about uh, Julianne Moore. This this has been sort of a recurring thing we're doing now uh, in episodes where we just pick an actor, actress, and uh, talk about them for a little bit just to warm up. Actually, I'll let you start on this, uh, Daniel, since, since you were the one who... Uh, Suggested the the illustrious Miss Moore. Mm-hmm. Sure, no problem. Um, I think uh, for me, the first time I uh, saw Julianne Moore. Uh, first of all, I love Julianne Moore. Um, I think she she's an amazing actress. I think she's uh, at at times doing better than material than the material she's in. But mm-hmm. um, I think the first time I noticed her was in Bookie Nights, um, where she plays the aging porn star Amber Waves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, porn film essentially. The time that I really, really noticed her was uh, in his next film, Magnolia, which is still one of my favorite films and one of my favorite performances of her. Um, I do think she's a little underwritten in the film, but she kind of plays this wife of a, uh, this, this kind of trophy wife of a matriarch, of a, of a patriarch, of an aging, dying old man, uh, Jason Robards. She has uh, essentially married him just to inherit his wealth when he dies, and now that it's come, she is, uh, finds that she actually loves him, and she's kind of falling apart at the uh, seams. Um, I think that it's a uh, really brave performance. I think that it, uh, last week we kind of talked about Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. I think Nicolas Cage often kind of gets uh, tarred with this kind of brush of being really broad and histrionic, and I mean, it's very easy to kind of take his performances and take a, a minute of that or 30 seconds of that and kind of make it look like he's just this crazy person. And I think that her, her performance in Magnolia kind of fills that role as well. I think if you look at it in isolation, you know, like the the most manic bits, it kind of, she... She doesn't. It doesn't seem like such a great performance, but I think the subtle moments are really uh, key for that. And I think that's the thing that, for me, what I love about Julianne Moore is she has this intelligence. She has this ability to communicate clearly what she um, what she's feeling. You know, she doesn't play bimbos I, by and large, and I think that yeah. that's a really 
uh, interesting uh, thing. So uh, those two films would kind of be where I would start off talking about Julianne Moore. Except um, Boogie Nights, where she. Well, I don't think she's a bimbo in Boogie Nights. I think that no. she's. Um, she's a professional. That's right. That's well, right. I, I am, I am hundred percent on board with the porn industry. So you know, there's, there's no uh, question on that. But uh, you know, I don't <laughs> think that she's a bimbo. I think she's a matriarch, and I think that she is. Uh, she plays it with an intelligence, and she, yeah, she's kind of a coquette and kind of a, uh, you know, you know, not, not formally educated. But I, I definitely would not call her unintelligent in the film. Well, that, in that, in that film, she's sort of, she's sort of a person who's looking for a family unit in the actual, in that actual porn production company, and, and the reality is they're really isn't a family there, but she's trying to make one, even even though because she's never probably never had one in her real life, right? So, right. I mean, Boogie Nights is ultimately a film about the way that we build um, relationships, that we build families out of non-family relationships, and about this kind of all these broken people kind of finding one another. I, that is not my favorite film of all time or anything like that. I think it, it does have some issues, but I think Moore's performance really grounds the film in a lot of ways emotionally. And I think um, that's, why, that's the first thing I think of with her is, is Boogie Nights. You know? Another worker, uh, another viewer rather, uh, Chris Steltz, said, uh, uh, concurred with your idea of Magnolia. He mm-hmm. finds that it would be a very foundation of a role for her. Really great stuff, apparently. Yeah. I've never seen Magnolias, so I have, might have to check it out, see what I think about it. But, yep, so you're definitely not alone on that one. Yeah, and we, we were sort of generally talking about her earlier on. Um, uh, Paul, any, mostly uh, about how smoking she was. Yeah, but mo- mostly about how hot she was. Um, uh, Paul, any uh, movies you want to bring up about uh, the Julianne Moore? Well, I mean, we were talking, we were briefly talking about uh, some movies that I didn't know she was in. Let's just say mm-hmm. that good movies that I've seen that I just con- didn't connect was uh, Fugitive, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that she was even in it. If my brain wasn't telling oh, me, oh, she's the uh, she's the person. No, no, that's Jane. She's, Lynch. A, do- she's a doctor in it. She's a. Oh, doctor. is she the one who takes his badge when he's pretending yeah. to be the? Uh, okay, yeah, no, I remember that now. Yeah, and then of course she was in Hannibal. Mm-hmm. Right. Then uh, I mean, Hannibal, we were talking about the the difference between Hannibal being more of a giallo slasher kind of style, more so than just the psychotic, uh, the, the dramatic thriller that that uh, Silence of the Lambs was, and how they, they you can't really compare the movies, but uh, I prefer Silence to uh, Hannibal. That's another one where she kind of lead. Well, she was basically the the uh, female protagonist, I guess you'd say. Well, she took over. She took over for Jodie Foster. And Jodie Foster. Right. I can never remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> and she and she did an ex, she did an excellent job. It, it was it was a thankless kind of role to inhabit as well because everyone was going to compare her to Jodie Foster, and I think she did an excellent job. Doctor Lecter, Doctor Lecter. Yeah. Dr. Lecter. <laughs> so, I, I have to this day not seen Hannibal start to finish. It's okay. uh, you know one of those things where I've seen enough of it to go ah you know whatever. Yeah. I, I will not let. Uh, I haven't seen any of the uh, later. I've really only seen Silence of the Lambs. It's kind of one of those like I'm done I think you, I think you'd enjoy. Uh, I'm 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 assuming you'd enjoy Hannibal, but uh, I definitely enjoy Red Dragon. Yeah, Red Dragon is the one that I've kind of been. Oh yeah, I need to see that one. And um, I have not seen uh, what is it Manhunter. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that one either, so that's, you know, again, uh, you can dot my pay for this one. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, they just told me, they just recently told me about this week about a movie called Pacific Rim, and I've never seen that either, so no. I get to watch that now. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, another great Julianne Moore uh, performance, Shortcuts, uh, from 93. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, she had this kind of early indie career. Yeah, she did she was, a bunch of uh, little tiny budget indie stuff. 
um, you know, kind of the early Miramax era. And then she kind of hit it big. She was in like I think nine months was kind of her big like oh, and now she's a star. And mm-hmm. then um, did some other you know she did the Lost World and um, Boogie Nights and Magnolia and she did a bunch of stuff and then yeah. kind of went back and kind of became more of a more of an indie actress again. The one yeah. I said I like to say that I thought was a really good one and I own it and I watched it a few times now where she looks exceptionally well in it. I have to say is Evolution. Fun film. I was actually just going to mention that one. The, yeah. the, I, I know that one is the Ivan Reitman trying to do Ghostbusters 20 years later again. Yeah. And failing it's a fun film. It's more it stupid than film. anything, but it is a fun film. And the one where David Duchovny sticks his ass on glass. So, yeah. He gets an ass glass. So sorry I missed that one. Boy, I actually yeah. saw that movie in theaters, believe it or not. And uh, <laughs> uh, Lee actually was talking to this uh, previous to the podcast. I think it was two days ago, opened my eyes to the fact that she was killed in one of the first scenes of the Tales from the Dark Side movie. Yeah, where Tales the from the Dark actually Side. killed her and then shoved her, you know, and stuffed her like a mummy and then wrapped her up. I mean, yep. I'll tell you, poor job mummy wrapping. For a mummy, poor job, <laughs> I'd have to say. Yeah, but yeah, but, she was, in, she was uh, her... Um, that was uh, her film debut, by the way. Yeah, her and Christian Slater and uh, Steve Buscemi were all in that opening uh, story in Tales from the Dark Side of the Movie, 1990. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for me, great roles I love her in, other than uh, Boogie Nights, um, would be The Big Lebowski. I really like her in that. Yeah. She's really is, good in that. Is she the one that says, I'm not afraid to say it, vagina? Is that her? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does, that, does that word bother you, Mr. Lebowski? Yes. Okay. I'm wondering. I was just trying to place her of in in the film. Yeah, she's the uh, she's the uh, art artsy uh, uh, feminist artist uh, daughter of the actual Big Lebowski. Yeah. Also, uh, I like her in Children of Men, even though she's only in it for like the first third of the movie. Not even that. I think. Uh. <laughs> I, I was also gonna bring her up in uh, Children of Men. I I do love that one as well. Hmm. I just uh, remember now. This this the problem is I remember seeing her briefly in a film that I was just kind of perusing through, where this the basis of the film was that the world was going to end. It's very artsy in the way it's done. Um, and was that, no, was that was that was that the one of Nicolas Cage knowing? I can't even remember. Um, I, can sure, for you. I remember yeah. there was just a couple at the end of the film just sit, sitting there, a, a man and a woman just just looking at each other with a, with guns to their heads and stuff because the, you know, oh. they were going to kill themselves instead. Which I feel is completely pointless because if the world's going to end, why kill yourself? Yeah, because it's probably going to end pretty quick. It's going to end anyway. You know, it's like that kind of thing. I hate to say this. this is an, uh, I, I'm not going to hate to say it. I'm going to be proud of it. The only reason I remember that movie is because she was in there and her breasts were out and they were lovely moving on. <laughs> and uh, that's she, all, all she, the part of the film that I actually watched. <laughs> she has done quite a bit of nudity in her career. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate uh, you know. that. Uh, think about her, what I... Um, I think is pretty interesting is she is a she's an actress in her fifties and she still looks she does not look her age at all and yeah. I don't think she's ever I don't think she's had any work done from what I can tell she's still willing to take those roles where where she'll you know bear it all or uh, just basically just take edgy performances edgy roles um, she she recently did one called uh, Chloe or Chloe. 
in 2009 with uh, what's her Amanda, Amanda Seyfried, yeah, yeah, Amanda Seyfried. In that that was a, that was an interesting movie. It, I also liked uh, her as the voice of the AI computer in Eagle Eye. <laughs> I oh, I didn't see Eagle Eye. I wasn't sure. I didn't know that she was in that. That's awesome. Yeah, she's she's the evil uh, artificial intelligence that's. Uh, trying to control everybody and shit. She's also in the remake of Carrie 2013. I don't know how many she times... She's the mother, right? Yeah, she's the mother in that one. I don't know how, how many times they're going to remake that fucking movie, but... Enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until they until they get it right, obviously. Anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. She, she reminds me a little bit of uh, uh, Amy Yazbek, too. Another good one that aged well. Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, she's a British actress who's, who's also still looks really great, and she's in her sixties. Um, oh, oh. Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren. Yeah. 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 She's a yeah. She's definitely still uh, yeah. And but, uh, but and every mean, time every time they take Kate Blanchett and put her in Galadriel, she's I think she's smoking. So <laughs> yeah. But uh, I I think. Uh, uh, all things considered, is is incredibly hot as she is, and uh, all that. She's an she's an excellent actress, and she's yeah. she kind of. I don't really kinda, I don't really base people on their merits like that, unfortunately. So, <laughs> moving she, on. She, she sort of got into it late in the game too. She only started her career in the 1990s, so she's. Yeah, that's what I was actually shocked by when I looked at her filmography. It was so new. I would consider. I I thought she, she was, would be one of those ones who started in the you know gritty early 80s and move through things and it's just literally like 1990 bam boom wham fugitive bam there's an I was like wow that was that was quick mm. apparently she was in um she was a soap opera she was on as the world turns as the world turns yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and that was only in the very late late 80s 85 to 88 according to wikipedia so if you yeah, want to trust that then you know 85 to 88 so yeah yeah all right uh anyone oh, oh uh, one more one more film um uh, far from heaven She's great in Far From Heaven. Have seen I that one. Completely remember that. That's the um, kind of uh, I think it's from the mid two thousands. Oh, is it, oh wait, that's the one with Tommy Lee Jones in it. Does it have Tommy Lee Jones? It's got Dennis Quaid. It's the kind of Douglas Sirk um, kind of pastiche uh, where uh, it's uh, set in nineteen fifty seven. Oh and right, it's made like it's in nineteen fifty seven. And yeah. so Dennis Quaid is a is a man who is discovering he's gay while Julianne Moore, his wife, is falling in love with the black man. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, I've seen definitely that. a a melodrama, like as melodrama goes, but it's really interesting to see um, kind of modern day actors take on this very kind of stylized fifties uh, material mm-hmm. and to treat it as if it was. Treat, I mean, you could put that movie in black and white and watch it. Other than the fact that. You know, obviously, it's got Dennis Quaid and Julianne Moore in it. You would believe it was made in 1957. Like, it is designed with that in mind. And uh, I think it's uh, wonderful, and her performance is just top-notch. Yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially like a 50s movie without the 50s censorship right. imposed on it, right? And apparently right. she worked with Burt Reynolds and B.L. Stryker. <laughs> B.L. Stryker. So, Burt a- Reynolds, shout-out to Ethan. Mustache. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> BL striker. All right. Uh, well, we can we can move on from that. I, I guess we'll go on to the next thing. Uh, basically, if you guys have watched or purchased anything in the last little while uh, that you might want to talk about, go to Daniel first. If if there's anything you've seen recently that's been good. I uh, I have. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna make a joke here. Um, I saw the uh, the last thirty minutes or so of uh, A Princess Bride. 
<laughs> I have seen. I was gonna say like this is my first time ever being exposed to this film. I never heard of it before. No, um, this is one of those films I grew up with. Um, I think I caught it the first time on like HBO when it was new on HBO. So in like '88 or '89 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, had no idea what it was when I first saw it, you know. And um, such a great mix of the the kind of uh, satire of the of the kind of it's not a spoof, you know. William Goldman writes about it in his Which Lie Did I Tell? More interesting than screen trade, which I know I've mentioned on this podcast mm-hmm. like five times. But he writes about the making of that movie, and it's worth th- that book is worth the price just to read about him talk about uh, this movie in particular because the the some of the behind the scenes stuff is just. Pretty remarkable and uh, pretty creative, but and he talks about writing the book as well, which is really interesting because William Goldman both wrote the book and the screenplay. Um, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal film. I think it's a master, a masterpiece of tone, of uh, finding a way of telling the story and kind of being funny, but also um, heart wrenching and also you know kind of having the romance element, but it doesn't mm-hmm. feel cloying and saccharine and um, just some really amazing performances. You know, even seeing and, you know in the last thirty minutes, it's all about like. You know, badass heroes storming, storming the castle with their brains and weird stuff. So, um, <laughs> I, I I love a Princess Bride. I don't think anybody, if anybody who's listening to this has not seen it, it's it's definitely worth a watch. I can, I've never met anybody who's like, you know, I just I really don't like a Princess Bride. I've heard I've seen people kind of being neutral towards it, but I've never seen yeah, anybody. It's amazing. Like yeah. Princess Bride. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think the Princess Bride. I've been calling it a Princess Bride, haven't I? It's the Princess Bride. I'm an yeah. idiot. <laughs> I, I think I, I think um, I think that film is uh, one of the true like quintessential family films. That's really a family film. Like everyone in the family can actually watch and appreciate it without feeling like they're being mm-hmm. talked down to or talked up to. You know. Right. I mean, if they made it today, it would be made by Pixar. Like that would. Be, yeah. You know? you know, and it would it it has that same kind of feel to it. You know, like like actually doing something that. Adults can watch and enjoy and not feel like, oh, this is made for five-year-olds. And right. yet five-year-olds can watch it and enjoy it. So yeah. uh, Death is on the line. There's you never go against a Sicilian, yeah. yeah. And it's got, I mean, it's got everybody. It's got Columbo. Yeah. Got Wonder Peter Years. Paul. Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant. Yep. Robin Hood um, Men in Tights. I mean, like, it's kind of got, it's got everything in there. He's in there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I mean, and it's got. Uh, it's got Frank Billy Crystal Kyle. and Carol Kane. Like, yeah, you know, they, I mean, they and they they play off each other extremely well in that movie. Yeah. You almost want to see a spinoff with just those two, just you know. Right. It's, it's I'm got, not a witch. I'm your wife. And it's got rodents of abnormal size or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that rodents yeah. unusual size. Yeah, uh, size. The swamp forest or the fire swamp, and then uh, of course uh, Chris Sarandon is a great bad guy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and he, Christopher and, Guest. Christopher Guest. Yep. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Overall, Kick-ass movie. Yep. yep. Uh, anything else, Daniel? Uh, that's all I really have right now. I I've been busy this week, so I literally finished watching the movie we were talking about tonight about um, thirty minutes before I. Uh, <laughs> you know. Right on. Uh, uh, anything uh, in your neck of the woods, there, Paul? That you've mi- I rented uh, rented uh, my Lucky Stars with Jackie Chan, and then I rented uh, Seizure Oliver Reed. Oliver Stone. Oh yeah, the all, yeah the yeah the early Oliver Stone movie when he was doing horror movies before he got his big break. Yeah, and uh, they went right back to the movies for theater. I never watched <laughs> because I don't watch movies anymore because I never have time. So it's like I just I rent films to help them and then I just give them back 
and then I go, I rent them again, and then I just give them back. I don't actually watch yeah, them. Uh, no, it's uh, even better when you have a uh, Netflix uh, subscription where you actually get the discs, and then you just get discs, and then you sit on them, and you realize, for what I paid to like sit on these for two months, I could have just bought them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, if if you weren't aware, uh, Daniel, uh, Paul lives out in the middle of nowhere, so basically his work internet connection is his internet connection, and he does have, he is one of the few people who still has a local video rental place, and he, and he, and he supports it, which I uh, applaud, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we rent about 15 things a week from them. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And it's super cheap, so I mean, that's one of the reasons we can help them out so much, but mm-hmm. yep. Yeah, we actually have a real live place, and they focus on having everything. That was their main key. He's like, I want to have everything. So I want to make sure someone that can come in with the craziest taste in music or, or movies can find something to watch. Yeah, that's, that's so awesome. They, I mean, they, 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 it's the only place I've ever walked into, and they have a place in the back, and it says cult movies. And I'm like, <laughs> perfect, because that's exactly where I go every time I go in. And he has over 700 horror films to rent there. Very that, good. That I appreciate it. No, no, you got you got to appreciate those kind of places because they are. I mean, if there's a population that supports them, they can still exist. But it's getting rarer and rarer. And it, it also like it's it's that kind of old school like there's someone curating it. To some degree, mm-hmm. you know? yeah, it is um, like a there's someone there's someone who you can like talk to and say what is how is this movie you know mm-hmm. um, I think in the in the, you know we kind of gravitate towards oh what is streaming what 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 some international corporation bought the rights to from another international corporation you know and there's a lot of just like bulk like you know five thousand things get included in this one deal and somebody made you know ten bucks off of it or something yeah um, so there is a lot of obscure shit out there I'm not saying there's not but it's also it's nice to be able to get to, to walk into a place like that and actually chat with someone who has, mm. you know, selected like, no, I really like this and I want to put it on my shelf, so I do. You know, so, yeah, and he, um, he gets a lot of uh, feedback and he likes to talk to people that come in to know what they need, know what they she should bring in. He was talking to me and he's like, you know, a lot of horror movies and stuff like that. I want a list. Go through it and make me a list of what you think I don't have. So I gave him a eleven page list of about <laughs> three hundred movie titles that I don't think he has yet because he goes, I want to I want to have at least a thousand horror movies to pick from by the end of the year. That's so awesome. So I gave him 300 vi- video uh, uh, titles that I think he might not have. Uh, I gave them to him, he appreciated it, but I said you're going to have to do a little work and you might get a little disappointed because some of these I don't think ever went into DVD, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're still, we're still fighting with that with a lot of different titles. Oh yeah, no, Absolutely. And a lot of those might uh, really slip into obscurity uh, and basically death now with uh, Blu-ray. I think DVD might have been the last sort of bastion of hope for some of those films to actually get found and released. I don't know if I don't know if anyone's clamoring for a Blu-ray of uh, other than Paul uh, of uh, blood-sucking vampire hookers from Brooklyn or some. I have that. <laughs> Well, the, the the DVD era, if I may, um, kind of go off topic a little bit. The, you know, that kind of that kind of when the DVD became the standard, when DVD kind of took over from VHS, and then suddenly it was this idea that, and then Netflix started up, and before it was streaming, it was just discs, and like the idea that you mean I can, they have this giant library that I can just order stuff from, and they'll just mm-hmm. send it to me, and when I'm done with it, I can send it back, and I can do that as often as I can. Like, as much as people love the streaming now, I think the streaming was the kind of birth of, like, TV 
as like a medium that people could like absorb and uh, fall in love with, other than just watching it on TV. I think Netflix streaming is an, is, a, is mostly a TV lovers medium, whereas mm-hmm. I think that the disc plan was really that, but for people who loved old movies and yeah, wanted it's, to, it's, uh, to to yeah. see everything, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, DVDs for collectors, right? I mean. um, and there's so much like I, I just I remember. There were like columns back in the day of like all the just weird shit that would come out. Like there was this weekly column on like uh, various uh, movie news websites of like all this like oh this has you know these eight samurai films from 1953 or whatever you know like uh, um, most of them are crap but these two are really not so bad and you should buy the thing and own these. Um, yeah. It's it's such a uh, it's such that medium, and I think that because of the added expense of Blu-ray, and because you know most of the stuff just the quality just isn't there to really justify the increase to Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, it does. I don't know. DVD is still out there though. I mean, it doesn't feel like DVD is going away. It feels like it's still uh, it's it's, it's, it's not dead. It's it's dead as far as um, people buying shit at Walmart is concerned. Right. I mean, right. as far, but I mean for people like uh, us who. Uh, would be inclined to buy stuff online and stuff. They're they're still pretty pretty solid market for companies uh, to sell DVDs. Uh, I mean, even um, some studios do it on the side, sort of like Warner Brothers. They have the Warner Brothers Archive uh, project where people can basically request something from their library and they'll send it to you. Basically, they'll burn a DVD for you and send it. It's not something to commercially make available in the stores, but if you request it online or whatever. They'll send it to you. Probably won't be the best quality. It'll probably be a burn from a from a you know a slightly damaged print that has not been restored or whatever. But if you want that movie, you can fucking get it. So well, I, I think that in the future, like 10, 20 years from now, you know, when we're talking to you know the next generation, when I'm fifty, which mm. my God, that just feels. I just said the words when I'm 50, and I just kind of had that moment. But um, <laughs> it's not that far away anymore. Yeah, um, no, but, you know, not. when I'm 50, you know, I'm talking to people who, you know, are getting into film for the first time. I think it'll be a really interesting thing to be able to say. Honestly, I suspect that at that point it's just going to be everything is streaming. Like, mm-hmm. it, like in terms of, you know, it's just all going to be on some big hard drive somewhere, on some big cloud server, on some big whatever it is at that point. And you're just gonna watch it, and it's just gonna be there for you. But I think that ultimately, there's still gonna be that market for the like, I want to have this to have for myself. And I suspect that it'll look something like a DVD. It'll it'll, it'll be, you know, the the Warner uh, Classics project, the one that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, a great model for it because it's ultimately like, you know, this movie, this this old print from 1962 is not making us any money sitting here. There's not a market. There aren't enough people who are going to buy it to justify burning it to DVD. But if we make it available for streaming for next to nothing and it's just a file sitting on a hard drive somewhere and, mm-hmm. oh, if you want your own print of it, you can buy it from us and we'll charge you 10 or $20 and you can own it for yourself um, you know, to, 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 put on your, to put on your shelf. I think that that's kind of the... That, that's what things are going to look like down the line. That's my feeling. Mm. I just hope we get the fucking holodeck so I can actually start being in some of these movies. Yeah, especially yeah, Boogie yeah. right? There you go. <laughs> right in the full circle. Right in right full circle. Mm. There you go. Uh, for me, just one um, one purchase. I got the uh, DVD Blu-ray combo pack of The, the Town to Dread Sundown. Uh, ordered that a little while ago. The, um, new, the old one? Yeah, the old one, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. The good um, one, sorry. 
yeah, <laughs> and it, it it comes with Charles Pierce's uh, The Evictors uh, as well as a ad, basically as a bonus feature. A whole movie is a bonus feature. I haven't watched The Evictors in a long while. I'm gonna rewatch it again here sometime soon. Pretty damn good DVD presentation. Some good uh, extra features. The best is the commentary track that has basically a historian uh, who lives in the Texarkana area and basically just breaks down the details of the actual. Uh, uh, Moonlight Murders uh, case as they're watching the film, like in just exquisite detail. Very, very interesting commentary track. It's very much worth buying um, for anyone interested in getting it. Um, you can get it at uh, Shout Factory in their uh, uh, their online uh, service. Um, and also, again, I'm going to plug Shout Factory TV because it's a great great streaming service. It's absolutely free. It's basically Netflix for cult movie lovers. Um, they just put up eight movies by uh, Werner Herzog on there, um, including uh, Aguirre, uh, Wrath of God. If you want to watch eight fucking Herzog movies for free, you should just go there and, you know, if you got an inter- afternoon to spend watching movies. Yeah, and, and who doesn't want to watch eight Herzog films for free? All right, uh, so I guess we can, um, unless there's anything else uh, anyone wants to bring up, we can uh, get right into shockwaves, I guess. Shortly before the start of World War II, the German High Command began a secret investigation into the powers of the supernatural. Ancient legend told of a race of warriors who used neither weapons nor shields and whose superhuman power came from within the earth itself. As Germany prepared for war, the SS secretly enlisted a group of scientists to create an invincible soldier. It is known that the bodies of soldiers killed in battle were returned to a secret laboratory near Koblenz, where they were used in a variety of scientific experiments. It was rumored that toward the end of the war, Allied forces met German squads that fought without weapons, killing only with their bare hands. No one knows who they were or what became of them, but one thing is certain. Of all the SS units, there was only one that the Allies never captured a single member of. All right, so... I actually have this on a a big box VHS. Yeah, sweet. Wow, nice. Yeah. All right, so... uh, I watched it on. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so Shockwaves from 1977, uh, directed by Ken Wiederhorn, who has gone on to do Return of the Living Dead Part 2. This is his most notable credit uh, since then. He's, he's done a bunch of TV as well. Uh, written by John Kent Harrison, Ken Wiederhorn, and Ken Pear. It stars Peter Cushing as uh, an SS commander, no real name given. John Carradine as Captain Ben Morris. Uh, John Carradine and, Cush- and uh, Cushing both, of course, are legends of the screen. Um, all, they, they both have multiple credits. Uh, John Carradine at one point claimed he had roughly over 450 credits to his name, mm-hmm. although they only list 200 and some in the uh, Internet Movie Database, but uh, there's a lot of roles apparently he did that were uncredited back in the early days. Um, yeah. Also starring Brooke Adams as Rose, who actually had a good little career for herself going on, uh, especially during this time. Uh, she went on to do The Dead Zone, uh, The Great Train Robbery with Donald Sutherland and Sh- Sean Connery, and she was also with Don Su- Donald Sutherland in the remake of Invasions of the Body Snatchers from 78. So and this was 
now married to Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. <laughs> uh, didn't Leonard Nimoy play in the remake of that as well? Yes, he did, yep. Yep, so rest in peace, brother. Yeah, uh, and this, this was sort of her big uh, breakout role as well. I think this was like one of her first roles. So, um, Luke Halpin as Keith, uh, he's probably best known for in the being in the 1960s version of Flipper. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, he went on to do uh, some various TV and movie roles. He's mostly known for doing stunt work and uh, behind-the-scenes crew uh, work on films and stuff like that now. And also, uh, probably the only other real notable role in this is uh, Fred, uh, probably not pronouncing his last name correctly, but uh, Buke or Booch? Buch? 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 Okay. Uh, Buchi, and he went on to do Porky's Part 2 and 3, and he also did some other uh, 80s comedies. So uh, this film is, of course, uh, a Nazi zombie film. As, Nazis. As is Nazis. Um, it, it starts out with this basically this sort of hired pleasure cruise sort of thing going on, uh, where the boat has been having engine troubles, and so they're basically pretty much dead in the water for a little while, and uh, they drift and hit something during the night. Basically, they got sent off course by this weird, strange, atmospheric anomaly. They hit something, uh, turns out to be a half-sunken ship, is what they hit, and they end up having to abandon ship, and they row to the nearest island. On the island, they encounter Peter Cushing's character, SS Command. He warns them that there is some sort of unforeseen danger uh, lurking around and that they need to get off the island very quickly. Of course, they don't quite heed his warnings quick enough, and pretty soon we have the Death Corps. Um, yeah, Totten Corpse. Totten Corpse. Totten, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, not quite your traditional film zombies, but uh, sort of uh, half-living, uh, half-dead, sort of almost almost android in a way, mm-hmm. uh, SS soldiers, uh, special brigade of soldiers, as the intro of the film explains, that were basically commissioned to uh, fight in harsh environments and mm-hmm. apparently fought with only their bare hands. Yeah, that's that's essentially the plot. They, they have to try to find their way off the fucking island before these uh, Nazi zombies uh, come out of the water and drag them all to their deaths. So. Yep. It it almost sounded when he explained uh, the Totten Kulp that they had different platoons of these creatures, mm-hmm. and the ones that were specifically under his control were ones that were made to live and fight in underwater type conditions. Yeah. Um, um, so why would you sink the boat? Because they'll just be perfectly fine. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's an, uh, that's one of the reasons why I think uh, they... I don't know. Maybe that would be the reason why they could get killed the way they got killed. I mean, uh, I thought they, the, the beginning of the film was pretty interesting. Uh, had a kind of a spooky vibe to it because, you know, they kept on talking about ghost ships and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it was, like, really weird. It, it didn't set the scene exactly in the beginning of the film. Yeah. Um, Later, when he talked about the energy harnessed from the Earth to keep the, these fighters alive, um, basically they tried to say it was like an old, old uh, Teutonic legend of fighters that basically they yeah. harnessed some energy from the Earth and caused them to 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 fight like that. Um, and I was like, well, maybe this that atmospheric changes is, is just signaling that kind of that force that they were talking about. I wasn't sure why the atmospheric change was even there, and then my mind kind of put those two together that the atmospheric force was also the thing that brought that means they were coming because apparently the wreck wasn't out there uh, as Peter Cushing was saying he was like he was like there's no wreck out there 
And they're like, it's right out there on the reef. And they're like, and then he asked uh, the name of the ship that was there. And uh, then they said the name. He see, he knew what the name was. And he goes, yeah, that's it. And then he goes, well, you're all going to die. And basically, he was like, oh, you're all, get out of here or I'll shoot you in the head. So <laughs> that was pretty interesting. Uh, so um, his, the, it's got a weird beginning to the film because there's this atmospheric change. And apparently a shipwreck that wasn't there showed up. Yeah. It was very interesting. I thought it was it's 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 not so cut and dry. It's kind of it's kind of leaves you questioning a little bit. I think. Yeah. But uh, uh, you have a really annoyed, angry, and dicky Radar O'Reilly. It kind of reminds me of him a little bit, like a really <laughs> angry version of Radar, bothered about the whole thing and giving everyone a hard time. Yeah, yeah I thought the, that was pretty good. Yeah, the husband and wife couple there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll shut up now. Any any initial thoughts here, Dan? It's sort of one of these things where you know. Uh, you're like, oh, we're gonna watch Nazi zombie films. And I'm like, okay, sure, and I'm I'm down. You know, I'm not necessarily a genre that I'm usually familiar with. So, but I, I'm down to see anything at least once. And uh, you know, watch Zombie Lake, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty decent. A uh, little, it's stupid, but you know, it's 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 entertaining. And, it, and it's the stupid. vagina made up for it for me. I like. And uh, Oasis, which was uh, stupid and not entertaining in its stupidity. So you know, ten, least, ten <laughs> film. At <laughs> uh, I, I I slept through. I mean, I just I feel like Oasis was a film that just kind of went right over my head, and I'm just like I I in in one ear and out the other. I'm just done. Like I remember very little about that film. You know, a week later, so I was kind of on that like, well, you know, what I'm gonna do is you know I'll watch it you know, like in little ten minute chunks while I'm you know in between classes or you know oh I'm gonna have lunch or whatever because I I do kind of have enough of a busy schedule that blocking out two hours to watch a film is sometimes gets difficult and that's unfortunate mm-hmm. for me but this is definitely a film where I'm like this 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 deserves better than what I'm able to give it right now this is a film I'm definitely gonna revisit at some point uh, because very quickly I was watching it and I'm like this is an actual film um, this mm-hmm. doesn't feel like something that uh, is uh, dashed off in eight minutes just to uh, to to give you know a reason to throw tits and blood on the screen there there's an actual story here and I actually like the beginning of this film I actually like the the kind of uh, I mean it's clearly influenced by jaws as, as pretty much anything made in 77 would have been like we want that kind of jaws money you know I can see a producer <laughs> saying you know and then when you get to the to the zombie action I mean it's not even really they're, I mean they're not even really zombies they're they're super soldiers it's just they're super soldiers with you know um, necrotic flesh. Uh, you know much more uh, interesting I think uh, the performance particularly Vincent Vincent Price um, you know just from the moment Peter Cushing Peter Cushing excuse me way to go sorry it's It's that it's that time of night. Peter Cushing. Um, my apologies. Yeah. I think you know, he sold. I think he sold the the commander pretty well. I, I think I think he's mesmerizing even before he's on screen because you kind of get that gramophone scene, you know, where mm-hmm. you know there's just this, like what the fuck is this, and it's creepy and atmospheric, and then you hear his voice, and it's like he's giving commands on the death star. What's going on here? Who is this? You know, and then when you actually see him, and then you know he's. He's a, he's a great. I mean, I don't want to say villain. He's just a great character in this movie. Um, he's a real presence, and he really like. Even though he's he's not in the first half, um, mm-hmm. it's really his performance that that I remember. Um, I like uh, I like the fact that he's a cold military Nazi soldier, but he doesn't oversell hatred or anything like that. He's very, but you he has that kind of emotionless attitude. But yet you can still pull things out of it that, like, when he's concerned and stuff. It's like, well, you're going to die, but, you know, whatever. (laughs) That's the way things happen. 
by, you know, when well, this, this is the goes. Th- this is a uh, the feeling I got from his performance is uh, this is this is a character who uh, definitely as soon as he sees these people wash up on the shore and tell tell the, him about the shipwreck and stuff, he instantly knows, oh shit, uh, we're all dead. Uh, yeah. he, he's got more on his mind than being, uh, you know, humane and caring about anybody at that point because he's right. obviously worried. He's worried that oh fuck, we're we're all basically fucked. Because um, yeah. this is a guy who tried to isolate himself and these super soldiers from the rest of the world. Uh, yeah, he, the self-sacrifice he, idea is already well thought out. Yeah. And he told them to leave. He doesn't care about leaving. If anything, he's kind of perturbed by these people because there's like. Basically, you walked into my world and just upset everything. You know, you you basically just screwed everything for everybody. So yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there's there's this definite idea of you know the the German uh, the Nazi scientists, like the idea that the uh, these guys were the top of the field. These guys were doing stuff nobody else could do. And this film pretty explicitly combines that with the kind of mysticism that the, mm-hmm. the Nazis had. You know. Um, which is uh, most clearly played out in the uh, Aryan idea, um, the kind of yeah. these kind of pseudo historical, pseudo mythological, um, you know, kind of ideas of heritage that they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the things that him Himmler grabbed onto in the in the Third Reich. But uh, but also, you know, these guys had you know like really weird beliefs about like the Hollow Earth and about you know the the there, there's this kind of mystical pseudo scientific kind of craziness that, that runs very deep in the Nazi mythology. And yeah. It's perfectly reasonable to me. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. the, the idea that, you know, that, you know, this is a thing that we can come back to over and over again. I mean, you know, a more modern Hellboy is kind of the same idea, that the Nazis had this, you know, mystical research division that was building mm-hmm. the magical yeah, society. society. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. So, um, I don't know, I just I, I found myself involved in this film from the first frame. Just mm-hmm. the just the the intro. Just I like. The, uh, the I love the uh, in the beginning. Right in the beginning is because uh, I, I I've seen people in real life do this too. So I thought it was a really nice way. He the line that he wrote. Don't apologize. Navigate. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like I've seen someone. The first thing when they do, they screw up and they just give that kind of lame apology. Shut up and work. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, I, I thought John Carradine did his job pretty well in this film. Mm. Yeah, under, um, I think it was an underplayed role because it, it was a it wasn't a very long role, but oh, it was. No, yeah, he got he got maybe what five minutes of screen time in the whole film. Right. Um, yeah. Both Go both ships. both Carradine and and Cushing were they only worked for four days on this production and were uh, given uh, five thousand dollars each for their for their work. Um, Carradine was doing this all the time. This was his late half of his career was doing bit parts for everybody who would pay pay money, right? Uh, yeah. Which is really sad and unfortunate because a he was a great actor, b he's the patriarch of a great acting family. All of his sons became actors, and some of their children are actors as well. So this is a this is an acting family that is sort of. Span generations right from the beginning of Hollywood. And he was, I mean, he he was he was mixed in with the the Universal monster greats. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was in the, in the high classes. He even played Dracula in House of Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, and then he he came later to be in one of my favorite movies, which is The Howling. He's played mm-hmm. in that. I mean, so this is guy has a, a lineage uh, and Peter Cushing too. Yeah, yeah. Peter Cushing played Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he's played everybody. I so. think I think the only difference is that uh, Cushing's more well regarded by people, or just better known yeah. because I, he, I think he there was, is a standard higher in people's eyes. He's on a plinth 
of because of he excellence. wasn't because he was not a notorious alcoholic. Uh, I think that's the big the big thing because uh, Carradine was notorious for burning bridges as well. Compared to Cushing, who everyone who ever worked with him said he was the consummate gentleman. You know, right. the consummate professional, consummate gentleman. Uh, the, you know, everyone says basically the nicest guy they ever worked with. So, right. I mean, uh, uh, Carradine was known to be difficult. Uh, there was, was, I was trying to remember. I'm sorry for interrupting you. There was a story. He, someone was sitting with Peter Cushing, having a lovely conversation. It was ex- is, is telling uh, um, Peter that uh, he was really scared because he had to work with Christopher Lee and he's like what, what's, what's wrong? And he's like oh I'm terrified of the man. He's terrifying. He's just that oh he's a lovely man. Hold on for a second. I'll call him. No 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 oh and then <laughs> Christopher hello there's someone on the line for you they, he's going to work with you. Go talk to him and he, and he just handed he goes Peter and uh, Peter Cushy just handed me the phone with Satan on the other line and I'm just <laughs> And I'm wetting myself, but we had a lovely conversation. That apparently Peter was just a lovely, nice guy, and he thought the world of people, you know. And I mean, that kind of thing. Oh, no, yeah, lovely well, yeah. guy, Chris. They, Chris, hi, Chrissy. Like, he was a, very happy. They had a uh, uh, Cushing and, um, and Lee had a basically a lifelong friendship, and just just to show you what kind of people they both, uh, well, what Lee still is and Cushing was, um, they supported each other quite a bit. Uh, when Cushing's uh, wife died, he was so distraught that he was basically, he didn't want to work anymore, and it was Christopher Lee that basically sort of supported him and got him back into taking roles and working again. So, uh, But anyway, getting back to the opening of the film, what you were talking about, Paul, there, yeah, very, very interesting how they, um, if they had fleshed out the actual script a bit more, maybe hinted at the supernatural as far as the full society and stuff, I don't know if the writers were even aware of that sort of thing when they were putting this together. But when you take the atmospheric differences into account and stuff like that, it almost feels like a Bermuda Triangle sort of effect, right? right? Where maybe the dimensions have, you know, crossed into one another and maybe that ship was somewhere else for a while and it came back. Uh, they actually used a real ship uh, as far as uh, locations goes. This, this was only a $200,000 uh, budgeted film, which was very minimal for 1977, even at that point. Um, and the ship they used was the SS Sapona, which was an actual concrete ship, uh, right. a cargo steamer um, that actually crashed during a hurricane uh, near the island of Bemim... Bemimni... <laughs> Fuck. Um, well, the island they shot on, they also shot on some other locations, I think, around Florida as well. But, uh, yeah, they, they used locations very well in this film, I think. So. I was going to say, um, we spoke a little bit about this. I think it's a beautiful film as far as locations go. I mean, that's one of the things that caught me about the film and wanted me to really wish they would have done more back panning and more on the location, show the hotel in more breath than they did. Mm-hmm. Two films all uh, came to mind when I watched this. Last Man on Earth, because of the film, uh, just nuance of the location, how beautiful it was. Mm-hmm. I the, the thing that got me on The Last Man on Earth was the location in the beginning. So, yeah. I mean, that really got me in. And, of course, da- Day of the Dead, with all the palm tree leaves everywhere just mm-hmm. scattered through that, it gave me a Day of the Dead kind of a reference, too, in my brain, you know what I mean? So the yeah. location definitely is absolutely beautiful, and it really did 
lock me into the film even more when I started watching. I kept thinking of Zombie Two. This is a better mm-hmm. film. Than oh, okay, that. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. No, definitely with the with the with the tropical setting and stuff. Tropical yeah. setting and the yeah. kind of similar sort of structure. I mean, different, but you know, like sort of. That same general guideline. Well, well, mm-hmm. this is a this is a much better acted and written movie. Like, uh, no, no, no. so I'll, I'll say this: the the characters are very underwritten. Like, the, there's 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 not much dialogue or anything for any of these people. It's a very, I guess, uh, very um, minimalist script as as far as the words uh, for dialogue and shit goes. But the actors are all fairly competent. They do a great job of what they actually have. I think even I think even uh, the sort of hero of the picture, Luke Halpin, is very believable as this sort of of an everyman kind of guy who is the kind of guy you sort of root for because you you hope he's going to save uh, save at least some of these people and maybe. Somewhere down the line, him and Rose might get together, but they don't really do the typical standard romance angle or any of that shit. It's much more believable. It's 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 much more like they're in this situation and they got to actually get out of it. No, I agree. R- R- Rose was in- an interesting character. Watching her, I mentioned this before. We uh, I was watching it and it she just kept on reminding me of two different people on different occasions, and my mind was just playing back and forth. I mean. Not to take away from what she was doing, but she was reminding me of uh, Margaret uh, Kidder from Amityville Horror. Mm-hmm. She was reminding me of her a little bit when interacting, and she reminded me a lot of Karen Allen from yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah. Well, and this is before Raiders. That's interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's also before Dawn of the Dead, which is kind of amazing that, that I mean, you know, if this had been made three or four years later, it, they would have been, it would have been much more explicitly a zombie picture, I think. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's almost it's almost like I don't even want to think of this as a zombie picture. I want to think of this as a kind of Nazi super soldier picture. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Well, yeah, that's it, the fa- that, that is the funny that. thing because they are not technically dead. Yeah. Because they die. If you can see them actually die, and when they die, they do decompose fairly quickly. But they they have this this essence of life that they they draw from the earth that they they can't die. Is basically what the, the thing is. It yeah. keeps that essence of life in them, okay, even I, though I, maybe the shell is is decomposing. They're okay, still, I, you know. That that's something. I, that's that's maybe one little thing as far as the the movie goes that I had a problem with, and I want to ask your guys' opinions on this. Um, how they're killed? Does it seem kind of just sort of a throwaway, cheap uh, way of getting rid of them? Because basically. The idea is these guys—they all have goggles on their on their mm-hmm. eyes, and then it's implied when you pull the goggles off their eyes, they die. Yeah, you know, basically, it's not even that. It's it's direct sunlight mm. to the eyes that kills them. So, uh, so some sort of connection between the sunlight hitting the brain, or yeah, something about drying it out because they're they're meant for the water. So maybe direct sunlight. They have this idea that it dries out something, but. Uh, a uh, one you'll see one zombie later in that kills uh Beverly kills mm-hmm. Beverly uh, and I knew that fish tank was gonna come in handy one day I knew <laughs> it um, but uh, he doesn't have goggles on and he's in the is he's in the hotel well yeah. if he doesn't have goggles on how did he get to the hotel because they came out of the water in the daytime so yeah. I mean the little things like that my thought was as just general if you look at the kills. In this film, it's a way to save money. You don't have to special effect it too much. No blood shots, no squims, just, you know, goggles off, fall down, shot of a rotten corpse. That's Mm -hmm. simple. Because if you watch any, except for Fred, Booch, except for Fred, Mm -hmm. I think he's the one that gets killed by the sea urchins. No, that was the cook. Oh, that was the cook. That was, uh... 
trying to name, I'm trying to think who's yeah, the I cook know. was. I don't even have, I don't even have his name on my um, notes here. He's the only one that got killed with some kind of special effect added. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, why would a, a trained seaman know? <laughs> Uh, why would a trans even know to uh, not know to don't take your shoes off when you're walking through the shallows because there's sea urchins there? I mean, I that I thought that was a little odd, but the thing is, it's it's a film. Don't worry about it too much. Um, overall, the zombies, I actually thought that was an interesting take on zomb- on on the how to kill them. But the thing is, it, it it wasn't there to explain itself. It was just there, and oh look, we found a way to kill them! Yippee! Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That kind yeah, of thing. They're more they're more just kind of classic monsters. They're more just yeah. like oh, and then, and then there's this thing. Oh, you take out their goggles and they die. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. for me, like I'm perfectly willing to just kind of accept. Like let's just like don't call them zombies. Let's just call them something else. But you know the whole thing is oh you take out their goggles and they die. Like okay now let's begin the movie sort of thing. Like mm-hmm. I'm I'm fine just accepting that as that's the rule here. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think ultimately I mean we can talk about the logic and and a movie like this I don't really care about the logic honestly. Um, I care about the mood. I care about the performances. I care about the the idea. You know like kind of what's the through line. Mm-hmm. One thing we haven't talked about that I did want to mention is the score. I think the score is really um, evocative here. I think some of the photography kind of supports that. I think it's it's atmospheric in a way that um, I wasn't expecting it to be. Um, and I'm not saying it's like great atmospheric direction, but I do think that it, it builds a mood and a tone very nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just very. It electric. feels like it. It feels like it's more expensive than it is. Let's put it that way. You know. Yeah, it's a, it's a very sort of electronic um, synth kind of score uh, by Richard. Uh, Einhorn, um, very uh, very good. Like it's just it's it's got I don't know it's it's got that sort of uh, feel to it of uh, other world otherworldliness, but mixed with science to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it is very effective. It works very well. <sighs> what was I gonna say? Um, yeah, uh, speaking on uh, something Paul brought up there about. Uh, Killing zombies, you know, uh, saving money on squibs and stuff like that. They actually originally did have squib effects in this film, but they had to cut the scenes out because squibs didn't work well. So they had to basically retool how they were going to kill these zombies off. And roll the glasses off, and there you go. Yeah, and I think it works very well. Like this, this film, even though it was made in basically the the peak heyday of the sort of exploitation, schlocky, bloody, violent kind of cinema. Uh, it's very much old school in this approach. Like, there's not a lot of violence, there's no gore, and there's no, you know, blowing heads off, uh, killing zombies by sh- shooting the brains out of the side of their fucking heads and shit. So, yeah, but the gun was pulled out once to dispatch mm-hmm. a zombie, and the guy, and Keith basically said, don't screw around, let's get out of here. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. That was the only time you see a gun pointed at a zombie, and they never even fired it. Yeah. Um, it's pretty interesting how they did that. Uh, I was going to say something else, and because I'm stupid, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> My brain went, nope, you're not saying anything, son. Shut your bearded face. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I actually appreciate that, that it's um, it very much has a more of an old-school sort of feel to it, and at the same time, it doesn't really doesn't really follow genre standards. I mean, yeah. the characters... I say, uh, the, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the kills are very blatant, but at the same time, the kills are very... You understand the kills. The zombies were, were meant to be an underwater force, so guess what happens to every person they kill? They drowned them. Yeah. It's not, you know, 
that hard to understand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so, and and with that, there is no gore needed. You know. Well, you if you're if you're a being that can breathe underwater or breathe underwater, whatever. Like if if you don't have a need for oxygen, your key thing that you can do is okay. I will pull this thing underwater and then just hold it down. Like in, yeah. and you know like. That's the easiest way to do it. I I, I was I, I kind of completely bought that. I was I was very much yeah. On that. I mean, like, it, it makes sense. It, they're they're there to drown people in water. They're the water people. That's that's right. very. I liked Beverly. She's so freaked out. She stabs a door. I thought that was pretty fun. <laughs> Just stab that metal door. Stab it. And then the metal door opens and the zombies right behind it. But for some reason, she just goes, "Oh, look, a fish tank." And then there, yeah, that's the yeah. end of it. Uh, uh, the only, the only other thing I want to mention that I really liked was the uh, two, basically the scene that they, they apparently liked so much they had to use twice with the, uh, the pitcher window in the bottom of the boat. Uh, <laughs> they used it both for John Carradine and for Keith later on in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, funny trivia point on this: uh, apparently, um, John Carradine almost drowned filming that, filming that scene where oh, he shows up, <laughs> shows up under the. They had to mm-hmm. take him out. out Pull him out on the beach and basically put the water out of him. Yeah. Jeez. So. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen. So yeah. that's good. Uh, the Bonaventure, I think, is the name of the boat. Bonaventure. Yeah. 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 So she got really wet riding a big white bone. That's horrible. <laughs> um, but uh, that was an interesting thing because uh, basically it's very cut and dry. If there's water, look out, there's a zombie. And mm-hmm. they just pop out of the water. The zombies are pretty well done. I enjoy the outfits. I like... And the the thing is, they're not zombies as the, the, the classic sense. There's a humanness still about them where you can see they're looking at each other, trying to figure out how to do things, what to go, where to do, how to walk out of the water. I mean, they're not... They're just military... Um, mummified military people, and that's all they are. And uh, of course, you know, they pull Keith out of the water as the the zombie's standing up to his nuts. And but when they pull Keith into the water, all of a sudden he's in ten feet of water. I don't know yeah. how, but you know, whatever. There must, uh, a, there must have been a big drop off on the on the shelf of that island yeah. there. I don't. I guess you can take take over the the getaway uh, aspect of the film. I mean, I don't want to steal your thunder. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty interesting thing. It's it's very cut and dry. Oh, there's a, oh actually the funny thing is when when the, they were trying to do that, Beverly falls off and mm-hmm. you know and there's a, there is a uh, premature escape in in the film to to build suspense. Is the only boat on the island apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and they're trying to 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 save Beverly in 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 doing that. Um, Rose is left onto the boat and he says, "Bring the boat around." And she said, "What?" And turned around. Apparently, got knocked over by the by the sail when the wind took it and then the but the only escape from the island washes into the in, into the the open ocean and they can't get it uh that is a little bit of a bummer for them <laughs> and uh, that's when they they meet uh Peter Cushing again and basically said I told you to leave and now I'm going to shoot you <laughs> and they're like, well, okay, we gotta go then. See you later. Uh when they get back after they find the cook, that's when they find the SS badge in the uh in in, mm-hmm. in the cook's hand. Yeah. Um, of course, he knows exactly what it is, and I mean it's a very understandable symbol. But that's when they tie in to Peter, and Peter gives them the rundown because they go into the main hall and it has Nazi symbols everywhere, and they go, "Okay, this is what's going on." I'm surprised they didn't bring up a little bit more anger and uh, um, kind of judgmental ideas of, "Well, you have a Nazi flag, you're the Nazi, you killed him, 
let's attack you and try to work it out and tie you up and then force the confection out of you. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't go on that angle at all, but uh, limited time, I understand mm-hmm. that. Yeah, you, you can you can also see the budget constraints uh, where they yeah. are like this I is think the, bu- the budget de- depicts the film. It it kind of moved the film to certain areas. You could see how the budget did uh, kind of can size the film a bit. This this is this honestly this is a film I'd like to see remade. I'd like to see it with a bigger budget. I say that a lot about a lot of films until they do, and then I went, "Wow!" This <laughs> well, yes, yeah. but um, I'm I, I'm actually kind of like if it was an independent, uh, if it was well, an independent movie maker doing this. My, uh, my only question there is, who should play the Peter Cushing role? Who should pay, play Peter Cushing role? Um, shit, you could. Uh, good question. Um, I mean, to me, the to me, I. I Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> hey, I'm a Nazi. <laughs> bada bing, bada boom. Hey, show your tits to me. Uh, uh, why not? Um, fuck, why not? Uh, Robert England. Uh, sure. He'd be a he'd be a genre guy to stick in. Or um, shit, no. Uh, Bill Mosley played Chop Top in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. He's he's getting around that age now. He he could he could fucking play. Oh, what is that? I was like, that, if you want to get more like a little, I'm starting to think of this one guy. He's uh, he's been in uh, uh, the German. He's been in German in a couple different things, and I'm not talking about the guy from Big Lebowski. There's another guy who actually is a pretty damn good actor, and he probably would be a very good serious role for that. But I cannot think of his name off the top of my head or anything he's been in. Wait, you can always go uh, Christoph Waltz. That's what I was about to say. Christoph Waltz. He would be perfect as a he's small, skinny right. guy. I'm thinking. I'm thinking outside the box here. Yeah. Go with me, Julianne Moore. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> she, she has to be naked. She could be uh, uh, Isla of the uh, SS She Wolves or whatever. Uh. <laughs> I think we should make this happen. Come on, guys. We got Ilsa, She Wolf of the SS. There yes, you go. exactly. Yeah, she. That's where she ended well, up. Well, that's the other thing is you're supposed to make female casts now. So anything that was a male cast, you have to make female because of you know equality and stuff. So that's perfect. Julianne well, no, no. Moore. The, the trend. The trend's now black. So maybe they should have. Um, uh, like Pam, like paint paint Julianne Moore black. Is what no, no, no. They, 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 they get Pam Greer. As, as the Nazi commandant. There you go. <laughs> I would I would see this movie a million times. Actually. I would too. I, Samuel L. Jackson could be the cook. <laughs> I could see that. I'm tired of these motherfucking sea urchins in my motherfucking face. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I want I want this movie now. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess we could uh, wrap up with any final thoughts on the film. Uh, we'll go to you. Uh, first. I thought. Uh, well, before I do that, the uh, the escape. Um, Mm. Let's talk about the end of the movie a little bit, maybe. Okay. Um, right. I was gonna say about. I thought it was an interesting thing. I wasn't trying. I was trying to follow the one scene where Keith un- unfortunately saves the day and then unsaves the day real quick. Um, <laughs> she finds this rope tied to the oar, and she pulls on the rope real hard and wraps it around for some reason. And I don't really see the reason why she even grabbed the damn rope. Uh, but unfortunately, then she sees Keith underneath the the hull of the boat with the window, and then the rope is actually wrapped around his neck. And I'm thinking maybe he was okay, and she actually ended up accidentally killing him. That was the point of that, and that's because why she's she a really, silly girl, and that's what we expect. And that's why she really <laughs> freaked out. 
Mimi Coast, and then of course the whole time she's narrating the film, yeah. so you already know the end of the film before you see the film. I, I don't uh, think they were, I don't think they're implying that she killed him or thought she accidentally killed him. I think she I think it was just a device to basically uh, position Keith in the right place okay. to actually show up under the picture window. Mm-hmm. You'd and, think the guy with the rope around his neck under the boat would have more likely a reason to almost drown, but because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm I'm pretty sure they I'm pretty sure it's implied. Right, right from the start. That uh, I, I don't the, think they used a fake Beverly in the fish tank. I think that was really Beverly put in the fish tank, and I think uh-huh. I'd have to say she held her breath extremely well. I only saw one small bubble come out of her nostril by accident, so I think she <laughs> did a good job. And um, they had a very interesting scene where it was mutiny among the men trying to uh, survive. Where um, uh, well, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, what's uh, what's his face there had uh, claustrophobia. Yeah, he had claustrophobia. So the guy that was telling everybody to chill out the whole movie completely flipped his shit. Yeah. And wouldn't stop even after he got out of the room. He demanded goods from the people, and they was, refused, actually, trying to fight it away from him. That was actually probably the one scene of like really big. Acting. That was a big acting scene, yeah, because he was well, he yeah. was really flipping out, and then Keith tried to fight it away from him, ended up shooting the flare gun into the. The, the freezer I think they were in or something mm-hmm. and of course they had to take a, had to escape their safe haven and go back out with the uh, with the soldiers yeah um, that well, was interesting and- they also I don't know I have to rewatch it because I can't remember how they actually got into the incinerator but basically they made us escape through the an incinerator then finally just find the guy dead in the swimming pool because, and isn't oh, that isn't that a bit of a Ironic joke. I'm sure it was probably intentional as well. The incinerator. Yeah, they yeah, actually. That's had what I thought in, too. Hiding the incinerator to escape the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. I thought I, I picked up on that just a bit. <laughs> I mean, I hope I, I mean, unless it wasn't even meant. But when I got it, it was it was supposed to be a little bit of an inside stab right there. Yeah, yeah uh, it was. Um, it was a pretty interesting uh, thing. I I liked how they instead of trying trying to have him float randomly, you could see the board underneath where he was positioned on in the swimming pool, so he could just lay still. I thought that was a pretty <laughs> well done shot. I thought it was actually pretty overall pretty good. I um, overall I liked. Uh, I like the the whole film. I like the end of the film. Uh, I thought, to me personally, the film is slow moving, so you mm-hmm. have to be prepared for that. The only weird shot in the film when I watched it was Christopher Lee run, uh, uh, Peter Cushing runs to the side of the, a bank to look look across this uh, reef rift of, of of water to see the Nazi zombies basically walking into the water, and it almost looks matty. Like a matte shot, in the yeah, way. There, yeah, there's there's a there's a couple there's a couple shots there. Like there's also the shot where um, uh, Luke and them are escaping, and they or Keith and them are escaping or whatever, and they look back and they see the the line of the Nazi zombies basically walking down in the water, and they're, yeah. it's almost like they're doing that that sort of magicians are walking down actually, the stairs. Yeah, not even magician, just sort of um, uh, like the, the, the illusion, like the, uh, the vaudeville kind of, illusion, yeah. Yeah, the strangest thing though is if you watch that, it looks very matty, very fake, but you'll notice... Creepy as fuck. It's, it's creepy as fuck. If you notice, right when their heads go under, you see a little bit of a glulp of water mm-hmm. every time though, so it must be real. Yeah, so it's just it looks completely matted, but at the same time, it, it's pretty, it's interesting. Yeah, I really liked it. That was uh, a weird shot that I thought I'd bring up in the film that I, I just thought it was a little weird. It was just weird. I don't know how to describe it other than the weird. I did like the twist at the end when this very well-spoken woman was explaining the uh, story in her brain 
and was completely batshit crazy. <clears throat> All right, so, Daniel, we'll go to you. You, I think we've kind of covered everything I want to talk about. I did want to okay. uh, just reiterate that that scene uh, with the, uh, the flare gun in mm-hmm. the uh, you know. Uh, that that kind of reminds me of uh, Night of the Living Dead, you know, with the uh, you know everybody's <laughs> Mr. Cooper, Mr. Cooper, we gotta get in the basement. <laughs> oh, give me the gun! <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, um, you know, when, whenever you talk about, you know, for me, like, and this this kind of goes back to my biases and my opinions on these things, you know, the monsters aren't scary; it's the other people you're trapped with that are scary. It's the yeah. it's the the way that people respond to it that kind of makes me care about the movie. And uh, I talked a lot about Peter Cushing, but uh, I do love that scene as well, you know. Um, I think that th- those kind of central ideas are uh, really well done, and I did want to just highlight that. Um, otherwise, I like this movie. I need to see it again. I just, uh, you know, again, watching it, you know, five minutes at a time was not the way to watch this. And so uh, I, it deserves another watch. So hopefully yeah. on a future episode I'll uh, just kind of say, oh, by the way, there's this other thing that I really loved that I didn't catch the first time. So. Awesome. Actually, we might even, um, depending on what we do for the next uh, episode of uh, Nazi Zombie Month, might just cover a couple films in brief and do a bit of a wrap-up instead so we could uh, bring it back then and talk about it. So is yeah. that plan? Yeah, so um, uh, I'll say uh, I, I really love this film. It, it, it is uh, a bit more slow and deliberate than a lot of the films of, of its time. Uh, a lot of its contemporaries were much more uh, bloody and violent and... Uh, basically, you know, exploitive. Um, this this film is a nice throwback to uh, horror movies from the 60s and the 50s, um, maybe even further back. And it works really well. It's incredibly creepy. It's very unique. I don't think there's really, even though it is lumped into the Nazi zombie genre, I think it stands out fairly unique from even any of the films in that genre. It's very different. Um, it has its own identity. And I think it's one of the hidden gems, uh, quite frankly. And if people haven't watched it, they really should watch it and give it a chance because it's actually really creepy, eerie, and effective. So, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, So, uh, we'll do the little wrap-up here. Uh, We will have the little trailer telling you where to go to find all of her stuff, but Paul, first off, where the fuck can people find you on the internet? They can find me on the YouTubes. uh, One word, P.A. Brew News. Uh, I have a Music site called Funeral Dust Six 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 One Word on YouTube. Then we got uh, the Facebook PA Brew News on Facebook. So if you want to see some metal music and really bad beer reviews, check me out. <laughs> right on, Daniel. Uh, probably the thing that you, if you're listening to this, you probably already know. But uh, I have a Doctor Who podcast that I do with my wife. Uh, we are up to the third Doctor era as of uh, the next episode that runs, so Lee, you're going to be happy about that. Mm-hmm. The next episode that comes up will be Inferno, and that may or may not be posted by the time this episode goes up. I'm not sure, but um, you can find that at oispaceman.libsyn.com. That's oispaceman, all one word, of course, dot libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Daniel E. Harper. All right, awesome, gentlemen. I will uh, choose the music to go on this time, and I think the best way to go would be just the basically opening theme score for Shockwaves, which uh, we commented on is really effective and interesting. And uh, we'll say thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for joining me, Daniel and Paul, and uh, we'll see you guys all next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.